Well, just to settle our, our minds in the text that we'll be considering, we'll just read again verses 18 to 21 of Exodus 20. Now when all the people saw the thunder and the flashes of lightning and the sound of the trumpets and the mountain smoking, the people were afraid and trembled. And they stood far off and said to Moses, You speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak to us lest we die. Moses said to the people, Do not fear, for God has come to test you that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Well, up to this point in the book of Exodus, Israel, as God's redeemed people, have learned many important things about their covenant God. They have seen the mighty power of the Lord in bringing the great nation of Egypt to nothing through the ten plagues and the drowning of the Egyptian army in the Red Sea. They have experienced the grace of God as he delivered Israel from the plague of death through the substitutionary death of the Passover lamb. And they have experienced God's grace again and again as God has patiently borne with them in their three-month journey from Egypt to Sinai. When Israel grumbled and complained of thirst, They were given water. When they complained of being hungry, they were given food. So Israel have seen the power and the grace of God. But here they are now camped at the foot of Mount Sinai. And they are to spend 12 months there learning more about their God. And in particular, learning one great truth, that their God is the God of holiness. And I hope that as we spend time considering uh, these verses in Exodus 20, 18 through 21, that this evening we too will learn something of the holiness of God and the implications that that has for us. And we'll work through these verses under three headings this evening. We'll see the terror of the law, verse 18. We'll see the blessing of a mediator, verse 19. And we'll see the need for obedience, verses 20 to 21. The terror of the law, the blessing of a mediator, and the need for obedience. First then the terror of the law. And we see in this passage that Israel are a terror-stricken people. Look at how they are described in verse 18. The people were afraid and trembled. 
But what has caused this? Why are God's beloved, blood-bought, redeemed, ransomed people fearful and terror-stricken? Well, the passage gives us two reasons for their fear. The words of God in giving his law and the presence of God accompanying his law. Back in chapter 19, God had said to Israel, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession. God had said back in chapter 19, I I demand obedience from you. And in response in chapter 19, verse 8, Israel has said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. But now, a chapter on, Israel knows so much more of what God commands in its length and breadth and height. They have now heard the ten words. They have heard that they must have no other gods before him. That they must not worship any idols. That they must honor God's name. And that they must keep one day in seven holy to the Lord. They now know that obedience to God means that they must love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, strength, and mind. They've also heard that they must honor their father and mother, that they must respect life, that they must not commit adultery, that they must not steal, that they must be honest in their speech. And that they must not covet. They have heard in all its breadth that they are to love their neighbor as themselves. And these ten words that they have heard have placed an absolute and universal demand on the life of every Israelite. Their worship, their hearts, their time, their relationships, their bodies, their lives, their possessions, their speech, the very desires of their heart over every area of their lives. They have heard God say, be holy as I am holy. And what has Israel said one chapter back? All these things we will do. But God speaking these commands reveals that this is impossible. No one can keep these commands. Every one of them searches out and discerns the thoughts and intentions of the heart and says, law breaker sinner. Every one of these ten words roots out the idols in our lives, the lust in our eyes, the covetousness in our hearts. And as Israel heard these ten words, there was only one conclusion. We are condemned. We are undone. And this 
condemning function is one of the great uses of God's law. God's law is given to show us that we cannot do what God asks. That while we are bound to obey God, we can never do what his holiness demands. And Paul drives that point home again and again in Romans. Romans 3.20 Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. Romans 7.7 If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. And that is what Israel feels here. As they hear the Ten Commandments, the weight, the burden of doing what God desires becomes clear. And in the light of this, they tremble. But it's not simply God's ten words, his speech, that cause Israel to have terror in their hearts. It's the visible presence of God. The reminders of his judgment and power all around them that cause them to fear. What is the scene as God is revealing the Ten Commandments? Exodus 19 tells us that before the ten words were spoken, there were thunders and lightnings and a thick cloud on the mountain and a very loud trumpet blast. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The whole mountain trembled greatly. And then, after the giving of the ten words, Exodus twenty eighteen. The people saw the thunder, the flashes of lightning, the sound of the trumpet, and the mountain smoking. And Hebrews 12 tells us that all the time God was speaking his law, there was a blazing fire and darkness and gloom, a tempest and the sound of a trumpet. And what a picture What a scene that is. I'm sure we've all experienced a a thunderstorm, feeling its its threat as the, the lightning flashes and the thunder peals. But that is as nothing compared to what Israel were experiencing here. The noise, the smoke, the threat around Sinai, all crying out judgment and dread all crying out, cursed be everyone who does not continue to abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. In every peal of thunder, in every flame, in every plume of smoke, there was the call, behold, the condemning power of the holiness of God. It is with good cause that Israel cowered in fear, saying Deuteronomy 5, Now therefore why should we die? For this great fire will consume us. If we hear the voice of the Lord our God any more, we shall die. 
So there were the words and there was the presence of God. Now later we're going to see some glorious differences between Israel and ourselves. But we need to be clear that the God of Sinai is the same God who rules and who reigns today. Hebrews 12 tells us that our God is still a consuming fire. And Hebrews 10 tells us that it remains a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And for all the fear and terror of Sinai, it is just a small picture of a greater day of terror and holiness and judgment to come. Because Revelation 16 takes the scene at Mount Sinai and says that is just a foretaste of the day of judgment to come. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, a great earthquake, such as there had never been since man was on the earth. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations fell. Every island fell away. No mountains were to be found. Just as at Sinai, on that great day of judgment, the voice of God speaks. There is thunder, there is lightning, there is the shaking of the earth, but the scale is now worldwide. And on that greater day of fear, the kings of the earth and the great ones and the generals and the rich and the powerful and everyone slave and free will hide themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains, calling, fall on us and hide us from the face of him seated on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb, for the great day of their wrath has come. Israel here feel the condemning power of God, his words, his presence. And they felt this to give us a picture, to give us a warning of what one day it will be like to be in God's presence apart from a mediator. And that puts the question to every one of us. We are going to have to come face to face with the God of Sinai. Do we know that as we are on that day, we will be condemned? Have we been brought to say with Isaiah, woe is me, I am lost. I am a man of unclean lips. Has Sinai done its work in our hearts? convicting us that we deserve the judgment of God and bringing us to tremble. But why does God reveal himself in holiness here at Sinai? Why does he warn us of this judgment day to come? Is it because he delights in us 
being fearful and trembling? Not at all. God's holiness and our sin is revealed in the law. The awesome power of God's judgment is shown to us so that we will desire a savior, a mediator, one who can save us. And that desire for a mediator is what we have in verse 19 of Exodus 20. And so we come to our second point, the blessing of a mediator. So how do Israel respond? We've seen they fear, they tremble. And because of this fearfulness and trembling, they now keep their distance from God and they ask for a go-between, a mediator. Israel said to Moses, you speak to us and we will listen, but do not let God speak lest we die. Israel have experienced that sinners cannot come into the unmediated presence of God. They know that sinners cannot deal directly with the living God. That will only lead to death. And so they rightly ask for someone to mediate between them and God. They ask, as it were, for someone to stand between heaven and earth, to bridge the gap between their sinfulness and God's holiness, to represent God to them and them to God so that they might not die. And in response to this request for a mediator, God says, Deuteronomy 5:28, they are right in all that they have spoken. And of course, in being driven here by the terrors of the law to ask Moses to be their go-between, they're turning to the mediator God had appointed for them. God called Moses at the burning bush back in Exodus 3 to be the reveal. Come, God said, I will send you to Pharaoh that you may bring my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. And in his God-appointed task as their, their savior, their, their mediator, Moses did many things. Here, he speaks to the people on God's behalf. Deuteronomy 5, 5 tells us, I stood between the Lord and you at that time to declare to you the word of the Lord, for you were afraid because of the fire. Moses, as their desired mediator, speaks God's words. Moses also represents the people to God. Exodus 20, 21 at the end here. The people stood far off while Moses drew near to where God was. He went into the nearer presence of God. The presence the people couldn't endure as their representative to receive God's words for them. But thinking about Moses more broadly in his life, he did many other things as 
the mediator for Israel. Moses provided atonement for sin, not simply in legislating for sacrifices for sin, but himself covering the people with the blood of the covenant. Exodus 24, 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Moses also, as mediator, interceded for the people when they sinned. Exodus 32, 11, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out from the land of Egypt. Turn from your burning anger. And even more as mediator, Moses offered his life in exchange for the life of the nation. But now, Exodus 32, 32, if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. And in all these things, Moses, the mediator that Israel desire, is a picture of the one ultimate true mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. For 1 Timothy 2, there is one God and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all. And Jesus is the one who ultimately reveals God's words to us. Hebrews 1, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. Jesus is the one who truly represents us to God. 1 John 2, 1, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Jesus is the one who truly intercedes for us. Hebrews 7, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. And Jesus is the one who does not simply offer to be blotted out of the book to give us life. But Jesus is the one who actively laid down his life to save his people. I am the good shepherd, John 10. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. So the giving of the law, the words, the smoke, the thunder led Israel to tremble and in their trembling and their conviction and their being undone it led them to turn to the mediator and again that puts a question to us as condemned sinners have we turned to the mediator God has given to us the greater than Moses the Lord Jesus Christ Have we fled from fear and condemnation to the acceptance and peace and blessing 
there is in Jesus Christ. There is no other way to be free from the terrors of the law. So, the terror of law, the blessing of a mediator, and finally, the need for obedience, verses 20 to 21. Moses, as mediator, speaks to the people in verse 20. He first says to them, do not fear. God's intention in giving the law with all its glory was not to leave Israel paralyzed with terror. When God brought the the thunder and the lightning on Egypt in, in the seventh plague of hail, yes, there the intention was judgment and terror. But God doesn't deal like that with his people. Sinai wasn't meant to leave Israel with slavish fear, to be running away from God, to be thinking that God was trying to destroy them. Not at all. Do not fear. And that God, through Moses, reassuring Israel, I'm giving you the law with a positive intent to bless you. We've seen one blessing already that Israel have been brought to see their sin and brought to value their mediator. But we see more blessing here in verse 20. God has given the law so that Israel might show their allegiance, their thankfulness to the God who has redeemed them. God, this verse says, has come to test you, to give you a positive chance to show that you love your Redeemer. And that remains equally true for us today. God's commands still test us. They still call us to show that we love the God who has given us a mediator. Because the greater than Moses, the Lord Jesus has said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. God also gave his commandments to guide Israel in a life of thankful obedience. When we just read verse 20, there's a little bit of a surface difficulty in in the text. It says, do not fear, that the fear of him may be before you, that you may not sin. And that might strike us as odd. Don't fear so that you may fear. What does this mean? Well, we've seen that God doesn't want his people to be paralyzed, terror-struck. That kind of fear is no part of the experience of God's people. But God does want his people to fear in another sense, to respect, to reverence him, to show piety towards him, to respect the holiness of our Savior God by living the kind of life that pleases him. God gave his law so that it might be taken thankfully as the rule of life for Israel. Sinai showed how much sin displeased God. 
And the only right response is for God's redeemed people to live lives of thankful obedience as far away from that sin as possible. God gave the law that Israel learn how to live with his fear before their eyes and that you may not sin. And that same responsibility to live as God would have us live lies on us. We've been freed from slavish fear more powerfully than Israel were freed. We know there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But our greater freedom from condemnation does not lessen but rather heightens our call to lives of thankful obedience. As Paul says in Romans 6, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Why then did God give the law to show us our sin, to drive us to Jesus, our mediator, and to be a rule for our lives, proving, testing our love for Jesus and giving us clear guidance how to live in the light of the fear of God and keep ourselves from sin. But as the passage in Exodus closes, we see Moses going about his mediatorial work. Verse 21, the people stood far off while Moses drew near to the thick darkness where God was. Here is Moses, the mediator, going on behalf of the people into the presence of the mysterious, glorious God. But what do you notice? The people are still far off. And that tells us that Moses' mediation, that all that was going on at Sinai, is not the ultimate answer. Moses could not deal with the problem that Sinai highlights, the problem of sin. Yes, he could intercede. Yes, he could speak God's word. Yes, he could institute sacrifices. But he could not make an end of sin. He could not, by a single offering, make perfect for all time those who are being sanctified. Israel were blessed here. They had a mediator. They were God's redeemed people. But their mediator left them at the foot of Mount Sinai, far from God's nearer presence. But as we finish, we can bless and praise our God that we are not left at the foot of Mount Sinai. Because we have one, Ephesians 3, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We have Jesus. We have the blessings of the mediator of the new covenant. A go-between who doesn't leave us far off 
while he is in thick darkness. We have a mediator who brings us into the presence of the holy God with joy and blessing. So while, yes, we feel the weight of God's law this evening, while we hear its call to go on living righteously, the great thought as we leave here this evening should be that Jesus has brought us into God's heavenly presence. For we do not come to Mount Sinai, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels in festal gathering, and to the assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. What a privileged people we are. We have come to Mount Zion, and to the city of the living God. Amen.